Typical 40. Your friend, the former drummer turned writer, and his wife, the artist with the apartment in the West Village, once again rescue you by letting you stay in their spare bedroom, and you promise them it's only temporary, that you're going to find some kind of permanent living situation. You're surprised when Brett Easton Ellis returns the copy of the manuscript you gave him, and it's covered with edits in black ink. You can't believe he read the novel so closely, and you set about spending all your free time in the conference room at Harold Ober working on the edits. One night, one of the agents spies you working and asks what you're working on, and she says to let her read it when you're finished. Sonny from Sonny and Cher dies when he hits a tree while skiing in Nevada. The teacher in Washington State, impregnated by her 12-year-old student, is released from prison early and told to stay away from the student. Monica Lewinsky files an affidavit in the Paula Jones lawsuit denying she had a sexual relationship with President Clinton, and a week or so later, President Clinton gives similar testimony. In addition to the helpful line editing on your novel, Brett Easton Ellis has suggested some wholesale changes to the structure, which you accept without question. Someone named Matt Drudge runs an email newsletter about politics and Hollywood gossip, and he includes an item about a story by a Newsweek magazine reporter about some secretly taped conversations that Monica Lewinsky's colleague at the Pentagon recorded, where Lewinsky admits having sexual relations with the president. Drudge's story is just about how the Newsweek story was suppressed internally, but a couple of days later, the scandal hits all the press outlets at once, it seems. Brett Easton Ellis even suggests some lines to add here and there, and you add them all. A group of Texas cattle ranchers sue Oprah Winfrey over a show she did a couple of years earlier about beef production in the era of mad cow disease. The cattle ranchers claim the show cost them tens of millions in lost beef sales. You write a letter to Charles Scribner on Ober Letterhead asking if you can meet with him to discuss the Scribner history as it relates to Harold Ober. You're thinking about compiling a history of Harold Ober, and he agrees. The old Scribner building is a block away, but is also a clothing store now, but Scribner's current offices are in the neighborhood, and you keep the appointment. The third-generation Charles Scribner is affable, and lively as he regales you with some clearly well-worn chestnuts about the golden days of publishing. But you do learn something you were ignorant of before. The fact that Fitzgerald dealt directly with Scribner on the contracts for his books, using Harold Ober only for the sale of his short stories, because there was so much money in short story sales and very little in the sale of books. You're incredulous, but when you check the Ober files for the contract for The Great Gatsby, you see it's true. President Clinton reiterates his denials about a sexual relationship with his former intern, the only question the press wants to ask him. Your boss helps you arrange a phone conversation with Harold Ober's son to learn a little more about his father, who is described as a blue-blood Yankee from Harvard, and you both chuckle about what he must have thought of Fitzgerald, that Ober was exactly the type of person Fitzgerald was envious of his whole life. The son encourages your nascent project and asks you to keep him posted. 
which you promised to do. The last living Ober client who knew Fitzgerald personally lives in Concord, your old stomping grounds, and you write a letter asking to interview the writer. The letter is answered by his daughter who tells you the writer is ill but is looking forward to talking to you. On the train to Boston, you admit what you've been denying about the au pair, that the relationship has probably petered out. The international faxes becoming less frequent, though she still professes to love you, but your concern is that the more time you spend together, the more ill-suited you seem, and how can anything be known with so many miles between you? Your Bennington friend picks you up from the train station, and you realize how nice it is to get out of the concrete city and into the green suburbs, if only briefly. You call to confirm your arrival the next day for the interview, and the writer's daughter tells you the writer passed away the previous weekend, and that the writer thought you were supposed to come the previous weekend, the unspoken idea being that he'd been holding on long enough to talk to you, but when you didn't show, that was that. The daughter is distracted by her grief and doesn't hear your apologies. The teacher in Washington State on parole for having sex with her 12-year-old student is arrested again when the two are found having sex in her car where she becomes pregnant again. Monica Lewinsky postpones the deposition she was to give in the Paula Jones case now that the whole world is watching. You've been listening to Typical of the Times, Growing Up in the Culture of Spectacle by Jamie Clark, editor of the anthology Don't You Forget About Me, contemporary writers on the films of John Hughes. 